Well, confession time here. I'm going to be having one of those milestone birthdays this year. Um, you know, one of those birthdays that you hit that makes you stop and realize that you are really now in a different phase of your life. Most of the women in my Bible study have boldly entered their 50s, and I do mean boldly. One of them has vowed to have 50 new experiences in the year that she is turning 50. But all of them have expressed a certain relief that comes with that age, a certain comfort um, with really knowing who you are, a freedom from trying to impress anyone, which was boldly demonstrated in the talent show last night for those of you who were here, um, as well as the comfort and reassurance that comes from bonds of friendship that are really built through the years. Doug and I are also celebrating a milestone anniversary in September. We too, through these 25 years, have learned to recognize our differences in our partnership and our ways of approaching things. This was clearly evident last weekend when we took our oldest daughter, Samantha, out to dinner. She's a junior at Hamlin and she was just about to enter uh, finals week. She was describing, though, a problem she was facing. She was facing a difficult conversation with a collaborator, and it was looming and inevitable. Now, she was mentally and physically exhausted, and the last thing she needed to do was to deal with a conflict with someone who should have been on her side. And she was sitting here with four science finals in three days in this major conflict. Well, Doug is clearly the optimistic side of our parenting team, and so he went first. And he told her that she is loyal and she is smart, and all she needs to do is explain herself and everything's gonna work out fine. I, however, am the realist in our parenting duo. I uh, proceeded to warn her about all the things that could possibly go wrong in this conversation. Her actions could be misconstrued. Her words could be misunderstood. There might be challenges and pressures facing the other person that she knows nothing about, things she can't control that might be adding into this conflict. The conflict might actually get worse before it gets better. But if she continues to communicate with integrity and humility, not giving in to the other side, but persevering until the issues are actually resolved, then she will have regained the relationship. Well, now this was specific advice to my young adult for a specific situation. There's wisdom in what I've shared for others, but you can't necessarily extrapolate this for all relational conflicts. For the past few weeks, we have been reading the second letter Paul sent to his young protege, Timothy. Paul was near the end of his ministry, imprisoned in Rome, and Timothy was just starting out, leading this church, of this body of believers in Ephesus. The letter opened with all sorts of encouragement, Paul telling Timothy to be faithful to God and the gospel of Jesus Christ, to be bold and strong, to stay focused and persevere. At the end of chapter two, Paul warns Timothy not to engage in divisive quarrels or become resentful. Why, you may ask, was this advice given? Because Paul is about to become a realist. Turn with me to page 1812 in your pew Bibles, or you can follow along on the text on the screen for the first part of our text from 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 5. But mark this, Paul says, 
There will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with such people. In his journeys, Paul had experienced the joy of ministry. He saw God's power cast out demons, heal the sick and the lame, and kindle faith in people who were questioning or even hostile to God. He had also seen that evil could be powerful and pervasive. He didn't count the presence of evil as any more of just a mere reality of this fallen world that we live in, a reality that could be, could be and has been overcome by Jesus. More than anything, he wants Timothy to be ready, to be prepared for what lies ahead. Listen up, he's saying, this is important. He wants to encourage Timothy to persevere in the face of a reality that can seem overwhelming and impenetrable. Before we look at that reality in detail, let's pause on the end of verse one. There will be terrible times in the last days. The Jewish culture reckoned time in two ages, the current age and the age to come, what they called the day of the Lord. This was a day when God would return to eradicate sin from our world and establish his kingdom in harmony with his people. The coming of the Messiah marked the beginning of the end of the current age, for they were now one step closer to the day of the Lord. The era of the last days dawned on Pentecost when God poured out the promised Holy Spirit on Jesus' followers in Jerusalem. As Peter noted in Acts 2.17, in the last days, he says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. The writer of Hebrews likewise opens that book by saying, in the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in many ways, but in these last days, he has spoken to us through his son. This last day's description of reality is meant to depict the present, Paul's present, Timothy's present, and our present until the day of the Lord arrives. Note that all of the discord listed in this list of sins comes, as one commentator puts it, quote, through fallen evil people, people whose nature is perverted, whose behavior is self-centered, and whose mind is hostile to God and his law. Yes, the world has the effects of sin and evil, but a lot of it comes through people. At the head of this list is people will be lovers of themselves. There's a reason this self-centeredness kicks off this list of sources of discord. This lovers of themselves is directly opposed to Jesus's answer to what is the greatest commandment. He answers, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and all your strength. And the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. God intended for our love for him to be our highest priority and our calling, followed by loving others. It's God first, 
and then others, and then ourselves. Now, we don't need reminders to put ourselves first. We do that naturally, to take care of our own needs and our own desires and wants. But when our outlook becomes too self-centric, our love becomes misdirected, internally focused rather than external, like a defensive porcupine protecting its soft underside while showing its sharp backside to everyone else. Instead of building up relationships, too much self-focus can become a force of destruction. Let's take a look at this list. This week, I looked at 59 different English translations, both word-for-word translations and paraphrases, going back to the original Greek. And I think that the word choice among these different editions really gives a richness to the understanding of the concepts of this list. This was a sobering study. On first pass, it's really easy to hold this this list at arm's length, thinking and lamenting that the world is just sliding down the drain of narcissism and isolation. However, if you really sit with the items on this list, if you're like me, a few of them might hit a little too close to home. If so, make some kind of note on your program. Get out your pen. Everyone should have a piece of paper as we go through this list. Note what it is that may speak to you. So I'm going to offer a few alternative word choices from some of these different editions. Let this list wash over you as you hear them. Lovers of money. Greedy. Money grubbing. Boastful. Bragging. Self-promoting, proud, stuck up, vain, abusive, insulting, tearing others down, disobedient to parents. It's quite interesting. This was really the only definition that was given. Um, It pretty much is what it is, disobedient to parents. Ungrateful, crude, kind, unkind unholy, profane, impure, coarse, without love, dog-eat-dog, callous, unforgiving, relentless, unappeasable, slanderous, malicious gossips, troublemakers, backbiting, without self-control, Impulsive, violent, brutal, ferocious, unprincipled, not lovers of good, without kindness, cynical, treacherous, disloyal, sneaky, rash, stubborn, hot-headed, conceited, bloated windbags, people who think they are better than others. It's a sobering list. Which brings us to Paul's bookend of misdirected love, people who are lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Paul wants Timothy to be prepared for the relational conflict that will inevitably come because people operate in inherently selfish and sin-filled patterns preferring good times to what God has called them to do. 
In case you are still holding this list at arm's length, Paul ends with the reality that he's not just talking about the secular world out there. He's not talking just about government leaders and business people. He's not talking just about criminals and revolutionaries. This is a reality even for people who make their home within the body of believers. Belonging to a church does not inoculate us against an empty or false faith. We'll come back to this in a minute, but for now, let's finish the passage in verses six through nine. They, these false faith teachers that are found in the church, they are the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over gullible women who are loaded down with sins and who are swayed by all kinds of evil desires, always learning, but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Just as Jonas and Jambres opposed Moses, so also these teachers oppose the truth. They are men of depraved minds, who as far as the faith is concerned are rejected, but they will not get very far, because as in the case of these men, their folly will be clear to everyone. Paul warns Timothy about these self-focused people within their Christian community because of the danger they pose both to the community by misrepresenting Christian values among the larger group of people and to people who may not yet be well-grounded in their faith. These false teachers can steer these new converts away from God by preying on their weaknesses. But first, let's be clear about what Paul is and isn't saying. He is not saying that all women are gullible. Some translations use the word weak for women or silly or weak-willed. This letter was written for a specific circumstance to Timothy in Ephesus. For those who would like to extrapolate this description to cover an entire gender, you would need in all fairness to conclude that all men are sneaky, manipulative, and deceptive. Like the false teachers in this passage, or even the Pharaoh's, magi ma Pharaoh's magicians, Jonas and Jambres, who emulated Moses' trick of turning the staff into a snake. Theirs was magic, Moses' was power. Even Jesus warned his followers against the imposters of this world. Jesus said, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. Trust your perceptions, Jesus is saying. If you encounter someone who is ruthless, insulting, unkind, and self-promoting, don't expect to find a heart fully devoted to God. The world is a dangerous place. Things are not always as they appear to be, and we would all be wise to test what we hear and experience against biblical truth. The reality is that evil can be persuasive, and whether you are male or female, whether you are the one leading the way or the one being led astray. Lest this passage slip from realism into pessimism, Paul concludes that their folly will be clear to everyone. How is that possible? How can the church recognize deception? And how can we guard ourselves from slipping into this self-absorbed culture that we're surrounded with? 
The key, I believe, is in verse 5, where Paul mentions that some people will have a form of godliness but deny its power. What exactly is this power that's being denied, ignored, or passed over? What, or should I say, who is it that should be present in abundance in any gathering of Christian community? Well, let's look for a few clues in some of Paul's other writings to the Ephesian church from just a few years earlier. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul tells his fellow Christ followers, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Paul acknowledges that there has been a transformation that has occurred in their lives out of darkness, the darkness of sin and a self-absorbed life, into a life filled with the Lord. He describes in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, And you were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. And back to chapter 5. Be careful then, Paul continues, how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. Be filled with the Spirit. The New Testament explains that when a person repents of their sin and puts their trust in the death and resurrection of Jesus for forgiveness and reconciliation with God, God gives the presence of the Holy Spirit to dwell within that person as a tangible sign, a seal of the life to come. As we mature in our faith, we learn to listen to that Holy Spirit who helps align our desires with God's desires. The Holy Spirit gives us joy and peace in the midst of whatever circumstances we are walking in. And he intercedes for us when we are at a loss for words. The Holy Spirit gives us power and discernment in the face of evil. Jesus went on to describe the work of the Holy Spirit to his disciples the night before he was betrayed. He said in John 14, the world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you, and he will be in you. A reference to that day of Pentecost. Romans 8 reinforces this idea, where it says, the mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. For the sincere Christ follower, the Holy Spirit will shine a light, a light on our areas of sin and darkness. And if we listen, he will remove our selfish tendencies and replace them with godly ones. Let's look again at this list of 19 fruits of a self-focused life and compare them with the fruits of a life filled with the Spirit. Besides bookending this list with a misdirected love for self and love for pleasure, that should be directed towards God, Paul placed right in the middle of this list eight of these 19 items in a way that would have been distinctive to the people who heard the original Greek language. In the Greek, these eight are godly characteristics prefaced by the prefix a. In English, it would be words like amoral or atheist, meaning without God, without a belief in God. So in the Greek, it was without a godly characteristic. Let's look at this list of eight. Since Paul is describing people without a love for God, when we remove this prefix, 
that means adding in God's presence, it reorients the meaning completely. A 180 degree change that transforms the ungodly into the righteous. That's our list of eight. Let's start with unholy. Unholy is the characteristic without God, but with God, we have holiness and faithfulness. Our passage that we studied last week in 2 Timothy says, if we are faithless, God remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. Holiness is a basic characteristic of who God is, just as faithfulness is. Next, if we look at unforgiving, unforgiving with God would be forgiving or patient. Peter describes in 2 Peter 3, God is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Forgiveness that is offered, patience is a clear attribute of God. Let's look at ungrateful. Ungrateful's opposite would be grateful with the spirit, thankful, joyful. Paul writes in Colossians that he gives thank, gives joyful thanks to the Father for those who believe. Without self-control becomes self-control with God. Not lovers of good becomes good. Without love becomes loving and kindness. Boastful becomes humble and gentle and peaceful. Brutal becomes gentle. Now let's look at this list and see if we can see the characteristics of a life with the Holy Spirit. Love. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The Holy Spirit is not a dictator. He's not a disciplinarian. He's not even a master programmer that will eliminate all the viruses from our lives. But God promises that he is not only with all of those who profess Jesus Christ as Savior, but he dwells within each one of us, readily available to help us walk through the conflict and challenges of life. It takes a bit of practice, raising your awareness of the Spirit's promptings and increasing your willingness to act or to speak when you feel a clear leading from him. City Church, let us hold fast to not only the outwardly, outward forms of godliness, but to the inward empowerment of the Holy Spirit, who gives us wisdom and discernment in the face of evil times. I encourage you to pray about the areas of darkness on that list that, you may, that may have touched a nerve for you, early on. That is likely the Holy Spirit convicting you of an area in which you need to grow. Pray about that. Ask him to remove the darkness and fill the void remaining with godly desires and attitudes. As we open up ourselves more fully to the work of the Holy Spirit, we will grow individually and as a community into a more faithful representation of Jesus Christ. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for sending the Holy Spirit to dwell within everyone who professes faith in your Son, Jesus, and for his work to bring unity to believers, to transform our words, 
desires and actions to more closely mirror your own. Help each one of us to more clearly hear and respond to the work of the Spirit in our lives. Cleanse us from the lure of sin and darkness. Give us the strength to endure the evil that surrounds us. Fill us with your holy and life-giving Spirit so that we may love generously and live boldly, manifesting your glory in this part of your world. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen.